Well, good morning, and I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas day. Now, today we get to the last sermon in our Advent series, where we'll be looking at actually one of the most interesting characters in all of the Bible, at least to me anyway, and it's John the Baptist. Now, he really is an interesting character, isn't he? Uh, Here's a man that's living in the dusty wilderness. He's eating locusts and honey. He wears camel fur with a leather belt around his waist. And when I imagine John the Baptist, I imagine this wild man with unkempt hair, with a frown on his face, and he's constantly shouting at uh, people. But what's interesting is that, what we'll see in a second, is that people kept going to him in droves. And so what was it that attracted people to him? And what was it that led Jesus to proclaim as he did in Matthew 11, where he said, truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment, isn't it? And so here's a man that is kind of weird, full of intrigue. And what we'll find today is that by looking at this man, uh, we get to learn a bit about what it means for us as a church uh, to follow Jesus. And so what I'd love for us to do today is to read from Matthew chapter 3, uh, from verses 1 to 12, and I'll offer a brief meditation on the text about what it means for us as a church to follow John's call in bearing witness to the message of Christmas out into the world. So let me read for you Matthew 3, uh, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Excuse me. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. Now let me start us off this way. You may have experienced this as it's happened to me a number of times, uh, where you're driving on the highway and you notice that on the other side of the road, there aren't any other cars. It's completely empty. And so you're driving along, you're wondering what's going on, and all of a sudden you see a police motorcade, right, with motorcycles and a host of police cars with blue lights flashing. And sure enough, 
in a moment you see a whole bunch of black SUVs and you know that one of them is carrying someone that is so important that they shut down the road for him or for her. And you know your reaction and everybody else's reaction as you're passing by, you're left wondering what's going on and you're paying attention. Now if you were to go back 2,000 years, at this point in biblical history in Matthew 3, it's been 400 years since the last of the prophets spoke. There's been no sign of or even a word about the promised Messiah that was going to come and that was supposed to come and save the world. But at long last, there's word that's going around that this Messiah has finally come. And he wants everybody to be ready. And that's exactly what John's job was, right? To get people, get the people ready for the coming Messiah, the promised king of the road, to empty out the streets, to pave the way, so to speak, for the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, and the promised king of the world to come and make his entrance. Now, if John's job at the time was to get the people ready for the first advent, then the church, our job is to get the world ready for the second advent, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that way, there's a lot that we have to learn from the message of John, right? What was his message, and why is it so important for us to embody it in the here and now? And so, with that being said, I'd love for us to go right into the text and examine what this message was. And notice the first thing that he says. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A fairly simple and uh, straightforward message. All right, it's a message of repentance that we're going to unpack uh, for the rest of the sermon. And the message simply is for the people to turn from their sins and turn to God, right, uh, and His mercy for forgiveness. But here's what's interesting. <clears throat> if you and I are being honest, right, here's what this message sounds like. And let me put it this way. Uh, as a parent, and for those of you who are parents, you may identify with this, uh, you almost develop a sixth sense uh, when it comes to your children, and there are times when I'm at the house and I'm minding my own business, doing my own thing, when all of a sudden I realize things are awfully quiet. And immediately I know something fishy is going on and immediately I think, where is my daughter? And when I find her, more often than not, I catch her playing with my phone, which she's not supposed to do. And so to have a little fun, I sneak up on her. And immediately when we meet eyes, she knows she's done something wrong and she instinctively throws my phone far away from her and acts like she wasn't doing anything wrong with her wide-eyed face. Now when we hear this message of repentance from John the Baptist, that's what we think of. We hear the king is coming, right? Emergency, so you better shape up. You know, you need to stop doing all of the bad things that you've been doing, right? Stand up <clears throat> and pretend like you've been doing good all along. But notice, if you were to look down in verse 7, what are the groups John targets with his harshest criticism? It's actually towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Now, we, have, we don't have the time to get into it in detail, uh, but suffice to say here that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious gatekeepers of the community. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones that people looked to to guide them into the truths of God in their day. So these, these men were well-respected, right? They were morally upright, right? They were decent people. And yet, John reserves his harshest criticism to them. And actually, criticism might be a mild way to say it. It's an insult, really, to them. He calls them brood of vipers. The English equivalent would be um, actually too harsh and offensive for me to even say here. He's basically cursing them out. But here's what's strange. If there was anybody that would have been prepared for this moment, for the Messiah to come, right? If there's anybody that would have been sitting up straight, right, doing good, it would have been them. So why is John singling them out? Why is he cursing them out? Here's why. Look down at uh, verse 9 with me if you can. Here's what John says. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, what is John saying? Now, to get what this verse is actually saying, we have to mention a little bit of uh, ancient Jewish theology. Because in that day, what some of the teachers at the time uh, taught was that through good works of one generation, you could have a, basically a storehouse of merit that you could pass down to your descendants. And so if your ancestors were considered righteous before God, Abraham, for example, uh, that meant your salvation was secure because you could draw from these merits Uh, in your lifetime. It's kind of similar to the Catholic idea, uh, for those of you with a Catholic background perhaps, with the Catholic idea of the treasury uh, of the church. And so when the religious people presumed that they have uh, Abraham as their father, essentially this is what they were saying about their religion. They were saying, we're the chosen people of God, right? We're the good people, right? We belong to a decent people. And our job as the religious folks is to maintain the status quo. Why? Because we are already good, right? Our ancestors have, have secured our salvation for us, right? We can tap into their merits, right? So our job is to not disturb things. Right? And as long as we keep our way of life pure right, and keep ourselves and our children unstained right, from the impure people that are outside of our community, we'll be okay. Right? That was the attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the time. Now, there's much more to say uh, on this topic, but let me just ask, like, do you see what this kind of mindset is producing. It's not at all about being honest with our faults before a holy God and turning to His mercy for His forgiveness and restoration. But it's all about keeping up appearances. It's all about separating themselves from others that you deem are below you and about looking to the heavens in prayer as we hear about in Luke 18 from Jesus and saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, if you're being sober, 
We see, this, uh, we see some of this in our uh, Christian subculture, don't we? Right? We say the world out there is foul, and so we need to keep ourselves unstained. We need to keep ourselves pure. And so we'll have Christian alternatives to everything where we can keep things holy and unstained. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with kind of these alternative cultural artifacts that we get to enjoy to the glory of God and to our joy. But oftentimes, it's undergirded by that kind of mindset. But here's what's interesting. Contrast that mindset with what came earlier in verses 5 and 6, where it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him, him being John the Baptist, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, how does this contrast work? Well, it's not uh, immediately evident in the verses there, uh, but what we need to know is that before the time of Jesus, baptism was actually reserved for Gentiles, Right, who were converting to Judaism. And it was this kind of ceremonial washing that would signify the kind of radical change that the Gentiles were willing to undergo uh, to become the children of God. It was the Gentiles leaving their old life behind and embracing the new life in God. It was essentially the Gentiles making a confession that basically said, I now realize that everything that I trusted in for salvation to give me meaning in life, whether it's my career, whether it's my accolades, whether it's my family, my tradition, my morality, I realize now that none of those things are able to give me what I need. It's an acknowledgement that said, I'm completely at a loss and what I need is God. What I need is to belong to him, to become one of his people, and I bring nothing to the table. The only thing that I can do is leave my old life behind and cast myself onto the mercy and the loving arms of God. To go back to Luke chapter 18, it was akin to a tax collector beating his chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's John's message. His message is that there's a king that is coming whose axe is laid to the root of the trees. Right? It's ready to expose and cut down anything or anyone that props itself up as the savior of the world. Now, it may prop itself up as the capital S, right? the savior of the world, as many false prophets that have come before Jesus' time claim to be. Or it can be the lowercase s, the tiny little saviors that vie for our attention, vie for our um, uh, loyalty, to promise to give us what we need. But how does John the Baptist, the front runner for Jesus, how does he describe him? It really is a far cry from the soft glow of a baby in a manger surrounded by farm animals. What does John the Baptist say? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here's what John the Baptist sees. He sees Jesus coming with a blazing fire and holy power who will take his throne over all worldly realities where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a book that I've been uh, reading through this Advent season, uh, appropriately called Advent, uh, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ uh, by Fleming Rutledge. And it's a collection of her sermons and essays. And in that book, she has this great line about John the Baptist. So let me read it for you. Excuse me. She says, even today, John the Baptist's lonely, austere style of life bears witness to a reality that is coming, a reality that will expose all worldly realities, all earthly conditions, all human promises as fraudulent and transitory. His appearance on the scene at this time of year exposes our pretensions for what they really are. And never have we needed him more. And when John the Baptist, probably the most single-minded person who ever lived, said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His whole being, his entire existence was on fire with the reality of the one who comes. He is the ultimate embodiment of a faith that is oriented not to the past, but to the future. Not to the repetition of religious exercises, but to the person of the Messiah. Not to arrangements as they are, but to an utterly new authority and dominion. John the Baptist is saying, there is a king that is coming in blazing fire and holy power. And if you think you are in because you have it all together, guess what? You will be exposed by the fire. I love the way Pastor Tim Keller would summarize this message. He says, when it comes to the kingdom of God, those who think they are in are out. And those who know they are out are the ones that are invited in. And friends, that's what repentance teaches us to do. To admit freely that we don't have it all together and to place our trust only in God away from the things that are vying for our attention and loyalty. To say there are none of these things that can satisfy me. There are none of these things that can bring me the kind of security and salvation that God himself and God alone can. And that is what repentance looks like. Now with that being said, here's what's scary about repentance. What's scary about repentance is that the more we grow in this practice, the more we find out that we are exposed of what's ugly inside. And I find this to be true in my own life, right? When I first became a Christian in college, and really quickly, soon after that, became a leader in our college ministry, I thought I was an amazing Christian. And I could not stand 
the lukewarm so-called Christians on our campus. And I pray every night for years on this little chapel that they had at the outskirts of our campus. And I'll pray fervently. I'll pray, God, I want more of you. I want to do more for you. Right? Give me responsibilities. Give me more people to minister to in my life. And I pray right, for the heathens on our campus that they would wake up to this greater reality because they're missing out on so much of life. Now, I'm not saying that this kind of prayer is bad in and of itself, but that's what marked my prayer life. And that's how I thought about the world back then. But I have to tell you, almost 20 years later, I'm happy to report that my opinion of myself has never been lower. Also happy to report that my prayer life is different. I have to admit it's far more frustrating than it ever was back then. There are these stubborn habits of the heart that pulls me towards self-validation and justification new ones that I haven't noticed before, these past wounds that I'm realizing that keep festering and affecting my day-to-day life. I now, far more than ever before, see unanswered prayers, and they're more prevalent to me now than ever before. I see more brokenness in the world than I'd ever seen before, and I find myself lamenting far more than I've ever before. And I find that my spiritual life is a far cry from the kind of triumphalistic, give your life to Jesus and everything will be gravy kind of Christianity that I clung to for so long. Why am I happy to report this? Because in spite of all of these things and perhaps because and through all of these developments, I have never been far more secure and my love for God and his love for me than ever before. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that the deeper I dig into the brokenness of who I am, that the more joy I find? Blaise Pascal was a great mathematician and a theological thinker, uh, once said this in referencing uh, the practice of repentance. He says, comfort yourselves. Comfort yourselves. It is not from yourselves that you should expect grace. But on the contrary, it is in expecting nothing from yourselves that you must hope for it. And friends, it's in the gospel that our hope for grace becomes our reality. Because see, it's in the first Christmas that we are reminded that Jesus, the once and future King, the Almighty Judge, came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. And see, that's what confused John. If you look at other accounts of the Gospels, we see that John the Baptist saw Jesus and he was going around healing the sick, right, forgiving the sinner and, and ministering out of mercy to everyone. And so that confuses John the Baptist and it leads him to ask, like, are you the one who is to come or should I wait for another? See, what John the Baptist did not understand at the time, but what we understand now is that judgment is actually reserved for Christ's second coming. 
or the second Christmas, if you will. But what we find is that at his first coming, God would bring down his fire of judgment, not on us who deserve it, but on his son Jesus at the cross. And that is why when we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our relationship with God, that he looks on us and decides to fill us with his grace and his mercy. And that, my friends, is what makes the fire of God not something that will burn us up. And just as God, by his grace, if you remember the story, kept Daniel's three friends from being harmed by the fire, in the same way, we will be kept from the fire. But not only that the fire will not consume us, this fire will act as a refining fire, revealing the glory that is in us, turning us into the kind of people God made us to be. And that's why repentance is not an exercise of self-flagellation, but it's an act that is able to give us life because we are rubbing the balm of grace and mercy into the areas of our lives that need it most. And so with that being said, let me close uh, this time with a challenge, one for us as individuals and one for us as a church. First, for us as individuals, and I include myself in this list, let me encourage us, perhaps, to spend less time in our prayers asking God for things, but more time in our prayers in repentance. It was Martin Luther who began his 95 Theses that basically sparked the Reformation with the words, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And again, this practice is not one in which we are beating ourselves down. Rather, it is beating the good news of the gospel into our lives until our hearts are inflamed by the forgiving and restoring love of God the Father and experiencing the joy that is ahead of us and, and, and experiencing that joy in every single area of our life. And that is why repentance is an act of joy. It's an act of where we practice this joy in our lives. And as we do so, what we'll find is that we become far less judgmental of others because there will not be a single person in the world that we could point the finger to and not have that finger pointed right back at us. But we'd also find that we are far more secure because we'd know that as far as we go down in the depths of who we are, we find God there with us, counseling us, comforting us with his grace and his mercy. But not only that, we will find ourselves to be far more useful to his kingdom because we will be able to engage our neighbors in love even as we speak truth into their lives. So that's a challenge for us individually. But here's a challenge for our church as a collective as we go into the new year. And here's a question. Let me ask it as a way of question. Will we busy ourselves with empty traditions 
where we are happy to go in and out of church every Sunday and revel in what we see? Will we busy ourselves with mere arrangements and practices and exercises or will we seek after God himself the living and bright reality and will we seek after him in repentance will we distance ourselves from those we look down on or will we see ourselves in them to live among them befriend them engage them and to learn from them and ultimately, here's the question. Will we bear witness to the gospel with our example by living lives that are shaped by the kind of repentance that on the one hand stands in awe of the holy fire that God is, knowing that this is the kind of fire that can consume us at any moment, the kind of fire that will come and expose all of our fraudulent righteousness. But while at the same time, on the other hand, rejoicing in the comfort of His grace that reaches out to us in the midst of the fire and draws us closer to the loving arms of the Father. It is that kind of reverent fear and holy confidence that will lead us to be the kind of witnesses that John the Baptist was, that is able to courageously move out into the world in truth and love. And so that is a challenge and the call that is ahead of us to continue in the witness of John the Baptist that will draw all people in droves to the loving arms of a holy God. And my prayer for us is that by God's grace and by the empowering of his Holy Spirit that we will continue in this faithful witness before the watching world as we move into 2022. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. And God, we come before you trembling knowing that you are a holy God and we are utterly undeserving of your favor. We are utterly undeserving of your love. And God, what a wonder it is to know that through your son Jesus that we can call you Father. That we have your unwavering commitment to be for us and not against us. That we have your unfailing fatherly love that is gently tending to us and caring for us. And God, we see from this text the practice and the mindset that is able to activate that kind of love in our hearts is the practice and the posture and the attitude of repentance, coming before you empty-handed, asking to be filled by your grace. And so, God, as we head into 2022, may our church be one that is marked by repentance, one that is marked by the joyful celebration of the grace that is at work within us, humbly coming before you in honesty and humbly moving out into the world, reaching out 
God, not with this authoritarian message of the gospel that looks to bend people by their knees, by the sheer force of will, but one that moves out into the world in love, beckoning them to join us in this message of repentance. May the good news of the gospel be alive and active and vibrant in our community here, God, and may move out into the world by your grace. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.